Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Ask Christopher West Show, hosted (laughs) by, co-hosted by my beloved Wendy West. Here I am, again. (laughs) So happy to be with you and uh, just share some thoughts about your questions. We hope they're helpful. We've been uh, watching something fun together as a family. We thought we'd tell you about it a little bit. If you're looking for a really fun family viewing miniseries. When did it come out? 2005. 2005. This is what, our fourth or fifth time through it? Yeah. It's eight episodes and it just, we can go a few years and then watch those eight episodes again, which we just recently did. It's on Hulu right now. If you have Hulu, maybe you can get it on Amazon. You just Google it. It's called Bleak House Mm -hmm. and it's written by Charles Dickens. And in this 2005 production, it is so well acted. There are these just amazing characters portrayed by great actors and actresses. And it's it's a murder mystery part of it. But it's it's a more than a whodunit. It's about um, a woman named Esther Summerson who doesn't know who her parents are and how she finds out who they are and Stories of love and death. Lots of people die. There are tear-jerking moments. There are beautiful moments. There are sad moments. There are tragic moments. What other kind of moments are there, Wendy? There's a really happy ending. There's a really happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's been a fun thing for our family. We're happy to share pass that along if anybody's interested. We we do. You and I actually, it's a great just bond for us we kind of like these historical dramas and oh yeah say more about when it's 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 set and what what charles dickens was trying to do with the whole court system and all yeah it's it's set in the mid 1800s and it was a contemporary story when charles dickens wrote it he wasn't writing about the past he was writing about his own current time um and he's through his characters who are funny and interesting in part because they're just slightly exaggerated. Not Most of them are not over-the-top exaggerated. You can still believe in them. Oh, me bones. <laughs> Mr. Smallweed, that's his famous line. Yeah, but he just he captures something of the different people that make up society and their strengths and weaknesses, and he's kind of critiquing things very subtly throughout, sometimes not subtly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting in that way. If anybody out there has watched Bleak House and you can relate to our enthusiasm about it and you know what the line, Ooh, I'm warm as toast. If you know what that (laughs) means, let us know, let us know, let us know. We'd love to hear if there anybody out anybody else out there who's enjoyed Bleak House as much as we have. Yeah. Okay. Um, Um, do you have any updates though about the Institute? Yes, we have, uh, completed the series that Bill Dunahy did for helping parents and teens to live out Theology of the Body. That is available to our patron community. Mm -hmm. So check out the link below if you're interested in that. There are also several study series on there that I have done. One is a basic introduction to Theology of the Body. One is a reflection on desire called What Do You Want? and How Our Desire Eros is Meant to Lead Us into the, the Heart of the Catholic Church and What All That Means. 
Uh, there's several other audio presentations on our Patreon community, which you can check out. And also check out the link below for our online and in-person courses. We have uh, two possibilities to take TOB1. One is in person with Bill Dunahee. Check out the dates there. And the other is online with yours truly. And if you take TOB1 in the next month, you could also consider coming in person to take TOB2 with me at the beginning of November. Right. Very so, good. But yeah, the links for all that uh, are in the show notes. Great. Shall I give Please. our first question, which is from a patron? Oh, no. We need to tell them that we're going to have oh, a special guest on this episode. We have a special guest coming <laughs> on this episode. Hint, hint, one of our children. Uh, <laughs> that is a hint. This is our first but time. But we have five, so they don't know which one That's it is. Right. And we've never had a guest on our podcast. That's right. That I can think of. Have We've we? had some video guests. Remember on our 100th episode? Oh, that's right. We did. Some With video some questions. guests had asked the question. Yes. That's right. So look forward to that at the end of this episode. Now, our first question is from a patron named Rue. Hello, Rue. Thank you so much for your monthly contribution to this work. We can't do it without our patrons. So grateful to you. I grew up in a relatively good home. I did lose my mother when I was nine years old to ovarian cancer, which mm. certainly had an impact on my life. But otherwise, there weren't any alarming markers of major dysfunction. That being said, I'm so hurt and broken. Much of my pain comes from seemingly small childhood wounds and current wounds within my familial relationships. I used to blame it on my sensitivity that I was hurt too easily. My question is, is it wrong to think that perhaps my pain and woundedness seems more than it ought to be because even a, quote, relatively good home is still far from what God intends family to be? I was listening to Dr. Bob Schutz talk about wounds and just became overwhelmed at the amount of pain and brokenness even people from good homes may harbor. I would love to hear your thoughts. Rue, your your question and the insightfulness with which you've written your question, your inquisitiveness, it's all uh, inspiring me, actually. Um, there are a few things I, I want to zoom in on in, in what you said. Uh, seemingly small wounds. Is that Was that one of her expressions? Se yes, seemingly small childhood wounds. Seemingly small childhood wounds. I can very much relate, Rue. Uh, you know, if you look at my family, uh, you know, on the outside growing up, my parents are still together after 55 years of marriage. Um, they love one another dearly. Uh, and, you know, in, compared to the childhoods of a lot of my friends, uh, my childhood was great. Uh, Catholic family, you know, committed Catholic family, all that good stuff. But there is dysfunction in every family. I once heard it said, and I find it humorous and insightful that the term dysfunctional family in a fallen world is redundant because we're all fallen. We're all dysfunctional. And those seemingly little wounds are not so little. I remember I was on a retreat. Gosh, this was 2005. So I was uh, maybe 36 at the time. And I was going through, the, the priest didn't know me well, so I was going, to, going through a kind of history of my life, 
and I was telling a story from my childhood, which is kind of, uh, you know, a story that comes up from time to time in family gatherings and people laugh about it, was the time when my older brother held me down. I was probably, uh, I don't know, five years old. He, he pinned me down and he had my two-year-old sister uh, so, gosh, she's four years younger than I, so I guess I was six years old. Whatever. He he pinned me down. I'm six years old. He had my two-year-old sister sit on my head with a dirty diaper. Oh. And and this was this story was retold many times in, in family gatherings with laughter, and I'd laugh about it, and ha, 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 wasn't that funny? And when I told that story to this priest, he got a tear in his eye and said, and I told it to him with some chuckling and, and laughter. And he said, Christopher, that's not funny. And that tear going down his cheek gave me permission for the first time to see that's not funny. And it, it opened a, a, a journey that I've been on for the last 17 years, taking a deeper look at my seemingly small childhood wounds that aren't so small. And some of the family patterns and lies that my family believed that got passed on to me, patterns of thinking that are just rooted in, in pride or a false sense of, of whatever, uh, superiority, or we're all coping with real pain in this fallen world. And even in so-called good families, there is a lot of pain and dysfunction. Uh, we are not in Eden. Everyone is broken. Everyone has fallen. And the fall is a real, real tragedy. That tragedy affects everyone. Everyone is in need of a redemption. And if you want to know how dysfunctional human beings are, look at the price of our redemption. The price of our redemption is the crucifixion of the Son of God. That's the remedy. That's what is needed to save us from our dysfunction. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not to say that um, every family is as is as dysfunctional as every other family. Uh, I did not experience divorce growing up. I did not experience physical abuse growing up. Although my dad paddled me with a pretty thick plank of wood that stung like shitsky, pardon my Polish, um, and I've had to work through some of that. But, you know, there are situations far worse than what I've been through or, or far worse than what you've been through, Rue. But here's another just little tidbit of wisdom that was passed on to me once that I'll pass on to you. It's an injustice to compare our sufferings. It doesn't do justice to our own lives or to the lives of anyone else to say, well, my life is not as bad as so-and-so's. Or, conversely, my life is far worse than so-and-so's. Um, each person has his own share of suffering in this fallen world. And just because your suffering might not be as bad as someone else's, that doesn't make it less real. It doesn't make it less painful. It doesn't make it um, any, any less important to work through it. And I'd also say this, and, and Wendy, you can speak into this because you lost your dad when you were young. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't underestimate the, the tragedy and the trauma of losing your mom to ovarian cancer. That, that's a major loss. 
Uh, I mean, death at any time in our lives of a loved one, of a mother, of a father, of a brother, of a sister, of a spouse, of a child, uh, any death of a close, close relative and loved one is traumatic. We are not meant for death. Uh, this is uh, the, the fact that death is such a tragic experience to us is indication that we, we long for eternal life. So I would encourage you not to be afraid to, to press into those things. And I'm glad you said you've been listening to Bob Schutz. Bob Schutz is a dear friend of, of the Theology of the Body Institute, of me personally, and he does excellent work helping people to look at their childhood wounds and how they affect their, their adult lives. I, I couldn't encourage you more to, to pursue that. But Wendy, what are some of your thoughts? I had an interesting experience when um, it was 20 years after my father had died, and he died when I was seven, um, that I started to realize that there were some things that he had failed to do, so sort of sins of omission, you might mm -hmm. say, for me while he was alive, that had caused me pain. And it's funny to say 20 years later, I started to realize mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe you can relate to this, Rue. Losing a, a parent to cancer when you're a child, there's a certain loyalty to the memory of that parent that kind of protects them from mm. any criticism mm. or something. Mm. We can't find fault with that one because we're kind of just aching for them. Right. You know, the, the absence of them is, is kind of this stronger feeling. Maybe in my case, it, you know, also had to do with the ways that my father's memory was kind of continued in our home, you know, maybe just kind of all remembering the positives to cheer ourselves, those kinds of things. But at any rate, it was sort of shocking to me 20 years after his death um, to be thinking, oh, my goodness, I think I, I'm hurt by yeah, that. Yeah. And I felt sort of overwhelmed by that. And um, I, some of you may just find that strange, but I think we we maybe have things just deep in our unconscious, and when they become come to our consciousness, it can be sort of a shocking realization. And I remember as I was praying about that, just realizing, you know what, everyone's earthly father disappoints them. Mm. Everyone's yes, does. Yes. That my earthly father disappointed me is not unusual, but it was just almost like new information for me mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to kind of bring into the light and just recognize that its impact on my life. So I just share that with you in relation to that losing a parent. And I also want to say there, there can be just a, a difficult balance between um, maybe some temptations to minimize things that are painful to us, thinking, who am I to think that was significant compared to other people's sufferings, right. as you were saying. Um, but there can also be, you know, a kind of hindrance to our growth if we suddenly become sort of obsessed with our woundedness and trying to find the balance of letting the Lord just lead us to the things that he's wanting to heal in us and letting him open up those rooms in our heart. If, if we would, in prayer, say to him, I want you to enter. I want you yes. to enter my whole life, my whole story, 
to bring about the good you want to bring about through my story, you know, to have it bear fruit for the kingdom, for my own life, for my relationships, that, that if he can lead us, if we can allow him to lead us and, and find that balance, and it's not like it's perfect, that's why I'm mentioning it, and nobody's perfect at it, but the, the, you know, the evil one could either try to keep us from looking at our woundedness by telling us this story of you have nothing to complain about, who, you right, know, right. or could kind of make us excessively focused on it so that we just become a sad person without really experiencing the graces the Lord wants to bring through his redemption of us. One of the lies that was told in, in my family, not like ever, anybody ever came out and said it, it was more in the air, something you kind of caught was uh, you're not lovable when your woundedness is on display. And it created a, a paralyzing perfectionism in me from which I'm still recovering. And one of the ways perfectionism can manifest itself is when the wounds show up, uh, we think, I gotta, I gotta get them healed quickly. I gotta get them healed immediately. I'm gonna do everything I possibly can to heal these wounds right mm -hmm. now because the underlying lie is my wounds make me unlovable. And it's simply not true. Rue, you can trust. If anything I'm saying you can relate to, just take consolation. The Lord has begun a mighty work in you, and He will bring to completion the work He has begun in you. Don't get ahead of Him. Don't step behind Him. And I think, Wendy, that's what you're, you're trying to get at. There's mm -hmm. two competing temptations yeah. to not look at it at all or to obsess about it. Right. Um, and I would say for years, <laughs> the one I fell into was, I'm not wounded. I'm, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. Because I was afraid to look at my wounds. And then, okay, the wounds come to light. I can't ignore them anymore. Okay, I got to fix them and heal them tomorrow. Uh, that's, just, that's just living from the same lie from which I need to be healed and delivered, which I'm loved right there. We're loved in our wounds. Hmm. And the promise is not even necessarily that the, that the wounds will go away, but, but something even more radical the wounds, our wounds will be glorified. Christ still has the wounds of his crucifixion, but they are shining with glory. So our, our wounds don't get erased. They get redeemed. They be, they've come to shine with glory. Hmm. That's astounding. Lord, give us faith uh, that our wounds too, just like yours, will shine with glory as we walk our way with you. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Thank you so much for this podcast and all you do at the TOB Institute. My question has been troubling my mind and heart for quite some time now. In various Catholic material I've read, for example, Guides to an Examination of Conscience, I've been told that, quote, every sexual sin, end quote, is a mortal sin, or at least grave matter. I can never get a straight answer on whether or not this statement is theologically accurate. If it's true, then my fear is that each and every sexual union with my spouse, if God calls me to marriage, would be a near occasion of sin instead of an opportunity for grace. I'm worried that if I enter the embrace with even a tiny shred of lust or selfishness, I'll be committing a mortal sin." Do you have any thoughts or clarification on this dilemma of mine? If I never get to a state where I'm 100% lust-free, is it better not to marry at all? Oh, bless you, bless you, bless you. 
Bless you, dear anonymous questioner. I want to release you of this crippling burden that has fallen on your shoulders. It is not of the Lord. It is, it is, uh, uh, this is how the enemy works with good-hearted people who are conscientious, who want to grow in holiness. Uh, he, he, he exaggerates things like this to cripple us, to lead one even to the point of thinking that I have to be perfect before I get married. Otherwise, it's an occasion of sin. The marital embrace becomes an occasion of sin rather than an occasion of grace. And, and therefore, maybe it's better not to get married. That, that has the, all of that, that just the, the smell, it smells of the cunning deceiver. All of that. Now, that's my initial reaction, which I just wanted to put out there uh, to start with. But let's rewind to this idea that all sexual matters are grave matters and therefore involve or may involve mortal sin. Uh, what does it mean to speak of something that is a grave matter? Okay, the, the greatest evils are the distortions of the greatest goods. So let's start right there. To say that when we pervert sexuality, it is always grave matter, if we put that, if we flip that around, what we're saying is human sexuality is such a great good. It is, it is, it is one of the greatest goods next mm -hmm. to the Eucharist, uh, uh, the sacrament of marriage next to the Eucharist, John Paul II describes, in fact, marriage as the primordial sacrament, the original sacrament, the sacrament right from the beginning. And every sacrament gains its, its character, you, you might say, is clothed, John Paul II says, in the spousal mystery. Um, so this, the source and summit of the sacramental life, of the whole Christian life, of course, is the Eucharist. But the foundation of the sacramental order, John Paul II says, is marriage. And marriage is consummated. Marital love, its consummate expression, is the joining of the two in one flesh. It is so great a good. Mm. It is so great a good. This is why the enemy attacks it, right? So that does not mean that there can't be um, distortions of sexuality that are venial. For example, a, a passing lustful thought. Has it entered into my will? Maybe I entertained it for a few moments, and I, I, I fanned that flame just a little bit, but I caught myself early on. I said no to it. Okay, the, the matter at hand, lusting, is, is grave, right? But the example of that, that slip is venial, mm. right? It, it, you were, you were, it was not with full knowledge. It was not total consent. It was a wrestling. It was a, it was a grave matter, but it was a minor wrestling, right? Mm. So a mortal sin has not been committed there. To, 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 yes, we have to recognize because human sexuality is so great and so good in God's plan, when it gets twisted, it is a grave matter. That's traditionally what moral theologians mean when they say uh, sexual sin always involves a grave matter. But that does not mean there aren't venial um, sins involved with human sexuality. Um, take a married couple. 
Eucharist, they, they long to have a holy marital embrace, as it is clear from our anonymous questioner that you desire that, right? Uh, you're also aware that you're weak and your spouse is weak. Or if you get married one day, you will have a spouse that is also human and frail and prone to all kinds of weaknesses. Well, that's just the human condition, right? To recognize that uh, should not cripple you from, from entering the marital embrace. It should spur you on to cry out all the more, Lord, we're weak. Come in your mercy. Come right into our marriage bed. Maybe even in that, there's a wrestling. There's a temptation and a thought. Did I entertain a thought of some other person, like a, a fantasy or something? Was there adultery in the heart? You know, those wrestlings, so long as you are not falling into them and totally consenting to them, they could be venial, right? I, ho I hope I'm, I'm making good distinctions here. Wendy, am I speaking sense here? I think you are. Uh, and, and are you are you thinking of anything that I should clarify here? No, I, I, I think you are clarifying things by what okay, you're that's, saying. That's my goal, I, but I, I'm getting kind of lost in my own thoughts here. <laughs> I, I just want to say so firmly and clearly to this person, do not let the threat of human weakness and frailty prevent you from entering a vocation that may well be God's plan for your life, in the, and if it is His plan for your life, that means it will be your vocation to holiness. No, notice the words here. Marriage is a vocation to holiness. It's not a vacation you take when you reach holiness. <laughs> it's not become holy, then get married. If that were the case, no one would ever get married. It is a vocation to holiness, which means if your marriage is doing its job, it will bring out all of your frailty. It will bring out all of your weakness. It will bring out all of your sinfulness into the light, not so you should be... Um, self-loathing or condemning of yourself, but it comes into the light so you can be healed, so that you can grow in virtue, so that you can grow in holiness, so that you can grow in the knowledge that the Lord is kind and merciful. That, I think, is a very important word for this listener. The Lord is kind and merciful, because the, the worldview that I hear in the way that question was phrased, and it's something that can cripple us all uh, when we get super scrupulous about this stuff. The worldview that was was painted by that question is the Lord is not kind and He's not merciful. Uh, he's, he's this big meanie up there who's ready to strike us down whenever we fail. That is not our God. The Lord is kind and merciful. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Just one further thought I have is just related to that phrase, a, a near occasion of sin. Just finding as I'm reflecting on that uh, phrase in the question, and I, I know that when we go to confession, we resolve with the help of God's grace to avoid a near occasion of sin. And I can get the logic of a person saying, oh no, do I have to avoid uh, marital union because it that's what I said I would, you know, I resolve with the help of God's grace. And the connection of those two is kind of just sinking in on a deeper level to me. And I feel like there's a danger if if a person were married and were to say something like that, I to say I see our union as, you know, a near occasion of sin, it it's such an intimate encounter 
in amongst you know between spouses that it could easily be heard as you my spouse right, right, right. are a near occasion of sin for me and i think that that is a really dangerous, dangerous. thing to yes. to bring into your marriage because this person to whom you're married is god's gift for you and meant to be a channel of grace in all kinds of ways in your relationship no one is that perfectly but in your union is meant to be a channel of grace so i just feel like for whatever reason i just want to like bring up that that connecting that phrase to a, a marital union i see it as as a, a way that really could bring harm into the yes, relationship yes. of the marriage so um i know that our questioner is not married but many of our listeners are and i just want to invite you to reflect on that and just think if if you are feeling like you need to step back from marital union it may be far better to say, could, I just am needing some time for prayer rather than to use anything like that expression, an occasion of sin, just for the sake of just staking your claim that God made our sacrament. It's holy. This is a beautiful gift and not something to be feared. It's meant to be, the marriage bed is meant to be an occasion of grace. Yes. Uh, St. Paul says, uh, let the marriage bed be undefiled and do not pursue marriage, St. Paul says, like the heathens do who pursue it in lust uh, and they don't know God, but pursue it in holiness. That does not mean the erasing of passion. That does not mean the erasing of erotic desire. It means the purification of passion, the purification of erotic desire. And the way that becomes purified in the normal course of events is not by sacrificing the marriage bed, but by sanctifying the marriage bed, by allowing the Holy Spirit into our erotic desires, into our longings to heal what might be lustful, what might be distorted, what might be twisted up because we're all broken. But this is what Christ came to do, the first miracle uh, in the Gospels is the wedding feast of Cana, where Christ transforms water into wine, and that is all a symbol of restoring agape to eros, right? Agape is divine love poured out, and running out of wine, John Paul II tells us, is a symbol of the original sin. Um, the, the good news of Cana, the good news of, of redemption, is that new wine is poured out, and it's poured out specifically right in the place that often needs it most, which is in the relationship of, of man and woman. Marriage is the sacrament that allows that grace to transform our lives. Trust in that grace. Let us all learn to trust in that grace. Don't be looking at your weakness. Be looking at the grace that is poured out through the sacrament to transform our weakness into strength. With our third question is when we're going to bring our special guest in. Special to, guest, uh, as we said earlier, very special to you, Wendy, and to me. I just have to say, very exactly. special. Okay. Here's the question from Tessie. Hello, Tessie. Bless you. In the TOB Institute store, there are some beautiful art pieces by Beth West. Is this Beth, your daughter? Yes. And That's our she... girl. <laughs> Very proud of her. Could we hear from her what inspired her to paint each of these pieces? 
as a woman in formation for the Ordo Virginum. I'm particularly interested in the bridegroom in the garden. The description of the art piece alone contains a whole lecture of Theology of the Body in it. But I would love to know how Beth was inspired and what the process of painting it was like for her. So this is a piece of art that our daughter Beth has painted called Bridegroom in the Garden. I've used it in my courses. We have it available at the website, and we'll put a link to that. She's also provided two other pieces uh, that are on the store, and I use these to great effect in the courses that I teach and in the live events that we do. And Wendy and I are thrilled to have our first official guest in our podcast studio. Drum roll, please. Here's my daughter, our daughter, Beth West. Hey, Beth, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. Hello. And you're a faithful listener, too. I am. I am, in fact, a faithful listener. And now you're on. It's so cool. You're I, on the Ask Christopher West I, I podcast. I feel very cool. I gotta hosted say, by Wendy West. My heart's pounding a little bit. I'm on I'm on a podcast, everyone. <laughs> I'm on a podcast. Oh, it's cool. Um, well, welcome, Beth. Thank you. Beth, tell us a little bit about yourself first before oh, you... before about you. Me. Yeah. Bef- okay. I mean, we want you to answer this question, of course, but okay. let our listeners know a little bit about you. Well, you see, I was raised by these people named Christopher and Wendy. Um, they're pretty cool. And um, I'm 18 years old. I just graduated from high school this past spring. And I just, this week, upon our recording, have just started my college career, everyone. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. And what are you majoring in? (laughs) Majoring in dance. So I love to dance. I love art, obviously, and dance is a form of art. So you, you, you have an artist's heart. I you, guess you could say you, that. It's true. I can <laughs> I can testify to it as your father. Thank you have you. an artist's heart. And one of the great blessings for me and for your mom is to see how your artist's heart has flowered Aww. in your teen years. And oh, t- can you give a little background here? How I can't even remember exactly our initial conversations about... Yeah. You providing some art yeah, yeah, for yeah. the for the work so, that we do at the institute. I remember vividly how it started. It was I want to say it was fall of 2019. That's when I think it occurred to me, but I remember I was at our local parish and I was sitting either before or after mass and just praying and I was thinking about how well my brother, my older brother Thomas um did a painting that is used by the institute. It's a beautiful depiction of Teresa of Avila in ecstasy, which should also be available on the yep, store. It is. Um and then that just occurred to me and I thought, huh, I wonder if I could get in on that. Like maybe I could do some art for the institute. That would be cool. Um and and then I just asked you about it and asked you what you would want. And um I remember you kind of were kind of oh well I don't know you know the, the idea was new to you and you were kind of throwing out a couple preliminary ideas and then I said what if I did a a stoic an addict and a mystic which um obviously is a concept that the institute yes, teaches a lot. Yes something I talk about a lot we have three choices with our yearning mm-hmm. we're either going to repress it like the stoic we're either going to or we're going to aim it at finite pleasures which the addict does you become addicted to finite pleasures because you're made for infinite joy. Oh yeah. Or what's the third option, Bethy? 
The Aspiring Mystic, The baby. Aspiring Mystic. Oh, yeah. So I was like... The, what is The Aspiring Mystic? Do? Oh, The Aspiring Mystic. You aspire to aim your desires at that which truly satisfies, ladies and gentlemen. Towards the towards infinite. Towards the infinite. So, so you did a depiction of these yeah. three postures. Yeah. And I use that to great effect mm -hmm. in the courses I teach and in the, the Made for More event we offer through yeah. the Institute. So really, people around the world, Beth, you're, you're 18 years old. Um, really cool. People around the world have been really blessed by your art. And I'll just say as your dad that I know that it flows from a, a very deep place in your, your heart. That Thanks, Papa. You have had a, a profound encounter, uh, not because Christopher West and Wendy West are your parents, <laughs> but in your own journey, you have had a profound encounter with the Lord. And that's... He's a cool guy, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, really, that's really what this particular right. piece of art that this person yes. is asking about. Yes, yes. So so tell us about that, Beth. So the Bridegroom in the Garden is different from the Three Choices one because the Three Choices I painted, you know, inspired by the teaching that I'd been exposed to and for the purpose of it being used by the Institute. This one I painted just as a personal work. Um, it See, I feel like an artist now. This was a personal work. <laughs> you are an artist. <laughs> oh, sure, right. You are, yeah, okay, so, yes, you am, are an artist. I am an artist. Um, uh, where was I? Oh, okay. So just a brief, if in case you haven't seen the Bridegroom in the Garden painting, which is linked below, um, if you look at it, this will probably all make a lot more sense. But basically, it's a, um, like, visually, it's, you see the figure of a woman um, in kind of black line work. Um, and then there's like some floral painting kind of throughout her heart, her chest. Um, and then there's, there's a mandorla on her chest, which is a symbol, um, of the meeting point of heaven and earth, which is another concept used by the Institute often. So mandorla, just to fill people in, is Italian for almond. And once this is pointed out to you, you'll start seeing the shape in sacred art all over the place. Mm -hmm. It looks like an almond, but it's really the... The coming together of two spheres when you bring two circles together and you join them venn diagram everyone <laughs> that that diagram or the, the the shape in the middle is called the mandorla and it's a symbol in sacred art of the meeting point of heaven and earth right so you have in this image the mandorla is kind mm -hmm. of like her heart opened up yes yeah it's the it's the opening point of her heart and then there's um, a hand, which is in the symbolism, is the hand of the Lord. I mean, really, it's the hand of the risen Christ, um, to be specific. <laughs> mm -hmm. Entering in through that mandorla into the garden of the heart of this bride. So, so there's a lot of white in the painting, like a lot of the papers left white, and that's like kind of a bridal theme. Um, and then there's from the hand, there's the wounded hand of Christ and then blood and water flow from the hand. And and the idea for me when I was painting it is like she's being cleansed from the inside out by this blood and water. So that's just a brief visual of what it looks like. But in terms of like... Yeah, what inspired you, Beth? Yeah. So this is out of the three, I would say this one has the most interesting story of how it became inspired. So it's kind of a cool one to pick. Um, it came about actually during a 2B course. I believe it was 2B2 couple like last summer um and i had just been at the if you've ever been to one of our courses we have these thursday night sharings where people share graces of what's going on in their hearts um and i was just listening and you hear amazing things um people had their hearts really opened and were going to really beautiful mystical deep places deep rich symbolism um 
just things that people were experiencing in their t- interior was like just profound and rich and and I remember getting home after that and it was all kind of overwhelming and and kind of the feeling I was having which I feel like a lot of people can probably relate to is just this like uh, like well I don't have those like like or I don't I don't mm-hmm. I'm not there like I'm seeing all these people who are at like five levels deeper than I've gone you know and they're experiencing things in a in a type of richness that I just hadn't felt and I was like oh Jesus like am I enough for you like it was mm. this like oh I you know so I was praying into this it was a very humble prayer it was a really like really humble prayer I me mean, being like look like Jesus I know I know like. I'm not like sensing things quite as richly or intensely or vividly as all these people are, but like, I'm trying, like, I mean, you know, come on. And it it was me like kind of reflecting on the yes. Right. So we talk a lot about like the Lord is the one who initiates and um, you know, the creatures are in this bridal posture of yes. And to the greater degree that you can surrender and say yes, then the deeper you will descend into the ecstasy of the Lord or ascend, I suppose, you know, that's a, that's a concept that I'm familiar with. And I'm, was just kind of praying into that. Like, you know, I guess, I guess I had seen and been exposed to a lot of people with a, a radical yes, that was bringing about radical fruit. Mm. And I was kind of in this place of like, Jesus, like, my yes is kind of small. Like, it's kind of like a little baby yes. And I know it's really small, but it really is like the best I can do right now. Like, this is what I got. Like, I know it's not, it's not super big. It's like pretty tiny. Yes. But like, I'm giving it and this is what I got. Like, please take my yes. That was my prayer. Like, I know my yes is small and imperfect and weak and, and whatever, but like, please take it. Please take my yes, please, please. Like that, that's what I was praying into in this kind of very quiet place of prayer. Can I say something just in observation? Sure. Go ahead. That little (laughs) humble yes is huge. Listen to the juxtaposition there, right? Your little yes is huge. Yeah. Because that that's all we have to offer as a creature. Yeah. So you got to a place of honesty yeah. with the Lord. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And in that place of honesty, there was a beautiful yeah. encounter, there a beautiful was. opening. Yeah. So so that was I, I put that out as an encouragement, I guess, to everyone that if that's if you got a little yes. Jesus likes those two. Yes. That's all we got. <laughs> that's all we got. That's all we got is a little um, yes. That's it's Therese's little way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very Therese. Um, so so after that that prayer, I guess I I felt I like, yeah, just kind of an experience in prayer of being, I mean, the best word I can say is entered. Like I I felt like it was it was intense and overwhelming, and I have to say I haven't really felt anything like that before or since. It was kind of this just uh, I don't even know it. Yeah, just feeling of the Lord entering me in a different way, and it was not a verbal thing. It wasn't like He was speaking words. It was much more physical and like wordless and potent and strange. And I was kind of like. It wasn't exactly pleasant either. I was kind of like, what is this? Oh my gosh. Like So when you say physical, what I just, was it did, was it something you felt in your Like my I mean my heart probably started pounding. I kind of I did feel like a feeling in my chest of like, oh, like a, yeah. like a oh, like a like a carved out feeling. I just want to add here that Teresa says that 
you know, the famous experience you were talking about Thomas's painting earlier of, of Teresa mm -hmm. in ecstasy. She said, I, if you don't believe me that I've had this encounter with the Lord that brought me to this ecstasy, I beg that you would ask the Lord and he would grant it to you as well. And, and she says, yes, it was a spiritual ecstasy, but she said, the body also has a share in it. Indeed, a great share. And I think that's what you're getting at. It's, it's, it's not merely a, a, a spiritual experience because we are a unity of body and soul. Mm -hmm. So you, mm -hmm. you, it's a, it's an experience that you feel spiritually in your heart, but also it, it reverberates into the yeah. physical realm because that's, that's who we are, a unity of body and soul. Yeah. And that's the beauty of art, right? Is it's, it's making visible the invisible, right? It's the incarnate mystery. So yeah, there was, there was that. And I, I was confused by that experience. It was strange and unusual to me. And then I had kind of, in my creative process, I will sometimes get like when an, when an experience or an idea becomes visual in my head, I kind of call it like this click, like mm -hmm. I'm feeling something, I'm thinking something, I'm pondering about something. And then all of a sudden, like I understand how I would visually express it. And it's like, oh, click like obviously like I see it as a visual and that kind of happened I was like oh duh like I could like had a you know baby version of this painting in my head like oh it's visual and then usually once that click happens it's like this nagging itch it that has I, to happen I must you conceived yes and you I must, must give, give birth, birth. <laughs> exactly it's like it won't leave me alone Beth that's that is an <laughs> awesome description of of what the institute what our mission is really all about we mm -hmm. are we proclaim obviously we're the theology of the body institute so we proclaim John Paul II's teaching, but but you can't do it without art because art yeah. itself is a making visible of the invisible. That's how John Paul II, in his letter to artists, describes art. Art is that which makes visible what is invisible. Mm -hmm. And you do, you have a gift for making visible, for putting in art these interior experiences. And Thank you. I, I, I've been so blessed by your art, Beth, because it expresses your heart. I love your heart. It's been a great joy for me as your papa, as your dad, to share with my students uh, the gift of your art, and I know it blesses them. And I'm so grateful that we received this question. I'm so grateful you came on to mm -hmm. share your, your heart with Very us a little fun. bit. And you know, you know, because you're a faithful listener to this I podcast, am. you know what happens now. I'm going to give... Can I... Oh, you need to add something? I want to add please, something. Please, please, please do. So sorry. No, do. Uh, one other tiny little thing well which is that if you enjoy my art at all uh or you know oh we're putting that in the, <laughs> in the links it's below it's in the links but everyone i make more art turns out um not just for the institute but also for myself and i'm you've been commissioned by I, many oh, yes, of my students that's true. to do I pieces i have been commissioned by many of his students so that's another plug if you are interested in commissioning a piece of art if you have an interior experience that you want to have visually expressed how many, uh, how many commissions of like that have you done? You've uh, had my students who say, like, can, I've had this experience. Can you put this yeah, into, like, into art? Like four or five? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And then a couple other commissions that were maybe less like, um, you know, less interior life focused, you could right. say. Um, but yeah, I will put the caveat that I am a college student and kind of have a lot on my plate. So I can't promise that it will happen soon, but it will happen yeah. <laughs> um, if you want a commissioned artwork. Also, I make art for myself. I have lots of art projects. I'm actually working on a book, everyone, a book of art and poetry. There's a little plug. And if you're interested in any of that, 
go follow me on Instagram. Here's my shameless plug, everyone. Good for you, girl. Beth underscore Rose underscore art. I make art. And we'll have that in the link as well. There you go. And my prayer for everyone out there listening is, especially for aspiring artists, if you have things in your heart that need to be expressed, pressed out, whether it's in poetry or painting or music or dance or literature, be not afraid. Mm -hmm. It makes us very Mm -hmm. vulnerable. Every artist can attest to this. Making art and putting it on display for others makes us very, very vulnerable because it's our naked heart on display. And I just want to say, Beth, your art is beautiful because your heart is beautiful and you know what happens now. And we are passing on (laughs) a great honor to you to share. Can't believe it. (laughs) To share your mom's line here. Here we go. Right. All of you out there, you know, you are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute, with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.